My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can show your support by doing one of two things. Number one is you can write a brief review on iTunes, or number two is you can simply go to interviewthefuture.com where you can become a patron. My guest on the show today is Rene Cummings. Rene is a criminologist criminal psychologist and an AI ethicist, and the topics that we would be talking here today are artificial intelligence, ethics, and uh, bias, uh, such as, for example, racism. So, welcome to Singularity FM, Renee. Thank you so much for having me. It is quite an honor. Oh, it's it's my pleasure entirely. Um, you know, I have to let me just jump right into the deep end here and let me share with you the weakest, biggest flaw of my podcast that I have had for the last 10 years that I have been running it. You see, I started this in 2009. I've interviewed over 250 people of somewhat you would call experts and the best in the world, you know, uh, Ray Kurzweil, Noam Chomsky, you name it. Michio Kaku, Bill Nye, the science guy, etc. But as one of my audience members pointed out to me recently, 5% of my interviewees so far have been women. 5%. So total disaster. And by the way, my wife has been on my case for at least a decade about this. And yet, despite what you could say my best efforts, so far, 5% have been women. Now, let's take it one step even further. It gets even worse than that. So, so far, you would honestly be the first woman of color on my show. Like, this is one place. So, on diversity, I am a complete and utter failure. And, of course, someone would say, well, an easy answer to that is to say, well, you work with what you've got. You know, it's not your fault that, you know, first of all, women are very hard to come by in the field of artificial intelligence. And second of all, if women are a very tiny minority, women of color are pretty much like it's impossible to find. So what do you want to say upon sort of all these things that I just shared with you? What's, what's your take on this whole situation? So I'll say this, you just said something that's very poignant. You said that women of color are hard to find. And that's something that we've heard for a very long time. Not only women of color, men of color in all industries, in all fields, in the C-suite, in the boardroom. And the challenge is, are we hard to find or are people not looking hard enough? And, and that's what we've got to ask ourselves because for decades there have been people of color in the field of science and technology. And within the last 20 years, many people of color in the field of artificial intelligence, and of course, women of color, some of the greatest scholars right now when it comes to AI are women of color. We can speak about Ruha Benjamin and her book, The New Jim Code, which is a take on Jim Crow as it pertains to coding, and Joy yeah. Bulamamwini. I try. I sent her an interview request uh, maybe two years ago, and I've sent it three times. Unfortunately, so far I've had no response from her. But yeah, 
Okay, so you did try. And then we have Joy out of MIT, who has been the uh, main advocate behind facial recognition. Okay, so then the challenge is a communication issue there because you certainly reached out to some of the best women who are in the field right now. So I I think the challenge is that we have always been there. Um, I think we also have always had the talent. Uh, In your case, they may not have responded. In most cases, I think people don't look hard enough. Yeah, and I think the good news within the bad news that they haven't responded to me is that because I have resent my invitations in the last uh, maybe month or so. But I think the good news is that uh, if they were busy before, which is totally legit, of course, now the good news is that they're even busier than ever, I think, because they're going on media left, right and center constantly. So I am, uh, you know, I'm disappointed that I still haven't heard back, but I'm happy to see them getting everywhere. And so, like, I am trying my my here my best, but I know I have to do better. I do know I do know I have to do better. So. Uh, well, this yeah. is definitely a start, and I hope this is it's just not an anomaly, but this is going to be the move forward. So again, it's good to be here, and it's good to be the first. My pleasure. My pleasure entirely. Uh, so let's let's start rolling the tape back a little bit here and just start with a simple question. We, Me and you, we meet each other for the first time today. So, and that's via Zoom, of course. So if I were to ask you, or let's say we were two people who just met for the first time somewhere in a, in a restaurant or somewhere else at a conference, perhaps. And I were to ask you, who is Renee Cummings? What would you say to me? Certainly, Renee Cummings is a very uh, dynamic, uh, down-to-earth, compassionate, empathetic uh, woman who really thinks about other people And she has made her life's goal uh, that ability to uh, give service to herself, to her community, to her country, and really to look at ensuring. Uh, I think my commitment uh, as Renee Cummings has always been to justice, to fairness. And it's something that I've been very, very passionate about, even as a child, standing up for people, letting my voice be heard for people, advocating for people who didn't want to stand up for themselves. So so that is Renee Cummings. She is uh, someone who gives voice to the voiceless. And tell us, how did your whole journey uh, develop? I know that you're originally a criminologist and a criminal psychologist. So share with us, how did you start that journey perhaps and why? Why did you decide to go into criminology and criminal psychology? And then what kind of turns of fate or discovery or educations happened so that you end up into artificial intelligence ethics? Certainly. So I began this journey really as a substance abuse therapist because I was really interested in substances and how substances impacted individuals' lives, and how substances are really changed the narrative of people's lives. And how could I use a therapy to make that intervention to help people reimagine? Because I think with reimagining and rewriting that narrative, you would be on the way to rehabilitation. So rehabilitation, there was something very, very big for me. And once I started to work in the realm of substance abuse rehab, 
I realized that most of my clients in New York were coming out of the criminal justice system, uh, programs that were diversion programs to incarceration for individuals who were addicted to crack cocaine and heroin and other substances. And then I started to realize that there was this correlation between substance abuse and crime. And I wanted to delve deeper into that. Was it that these individuals, because of addiction, uh, had to use criminal activities to support their addiction, whether or not the criminal justice system uh, made it so that they didn't have the help that they needed and they had to seek um, you know, resources out of the criminal justice system? So there were so many questions that I wanted to, to really ask myself. And that is what led me on a journey to study crime and criminality. And when I went into university at the graduate level, let me just ask you here for a second. Uh, was there any other additional personal motive, perhaps like a personal story or, or someone you knew or some other additional personal emotional reason for you? Because I had a very close friend in school who became addicted to crack cocaine when he was in high school. And he was someone that I cared for a lot. And uh, he was very, very talented. And he eventually took his own life because of, of substance abuse and because of uh, the challenge of uh, you know, rehabilitation and uh, staying clean and relapse and the uh, pressures of his family. And he died uh, before he turned uh, 21 years old. Wow. And I think that stayed with me uh, for a very long time. And uh, in my own family, there were individuals struggling uh, with certain levels of addiction. And it was something that, that really, uh, you know, brought me a lot of, of pain because when I thought about my best friend uh, from high school and uh, we didn't really have an opportunity to grow up together and he was so talented. He had such an amazing singing voice and uh, I would remember uh, forever how he would sing these amazing songs. He loved to sing opera and, um, and it, it just really was something that, that stayed with me. So definitely that is the, I think that was my personal impetus to uh, moving into uh, substance abuse and really trying to see what I can do when it comes to, to giving back into service among uh, individuals who were dealing with addiction. Thank you very much yes. for that personal story. Sure. I always wanna wanna find why people do it because you know it's very empathetic uh, to to do what you're doing and where you started, but most people don't start just for the reason that it's the right thing to do and it's the noble thing to do as it is, but also because there's a personal motive. So thank you very much for sharing that with us. So now tell us, how did you progress afterwards? Sure, certainly. So then I, I got into grad school and I started to study uh, criminal justice and particularly criminology. And while I was there, uh, it was uh, still around the time where New York was still dealing with the after effects of 9-11. And I actually went into terrorism studies. So I looked at wow. criminology and I looked at terrorism studies and my focus was the psychodynamics of terrorism. And I think that introduction into the psychodynamics of terrorism combined with my past in, in uh, counseling psychology and substance abuse treatment really came together. And that sort of piqued my interest as well in criminal psychology. So a lot of the things that I did look not only at the now, the individual perpetrating the crime, but going back into the history of that individual to find out the many things that may have created the context or proclivity to, to criminality. So that's how I combined uh, criminal justice, criminology, and criminal psychology. And then 
when I was completed with that, I really started my uh, work when it came to uh, consulting and really uh, specializing in the homicide investigation, uh, reducing gun and gang uh, violence, um, the uh, investigations to any type of violent crime, in particularly sex crimes, dealing with juvenile delinquency prevention, uh, juvenile justice, and um, white collar crime was an area of specialization as well. The uh, psychodynamics and the psychology or maybe the psychiatry of, of white collar criminality. And uh, I think this is where I have been for a very long time, for about 14 years. But about two years ago, I started to become very intrigued by uh, what was happening in the criminal justice system and what we would call uh, algorithms administering justice or arraignment by algorithms. And I started to read a lot about these risk assessment tools that were being designed to predict reoffending and how these tools were disproportionately uh, giving uh, extended sentences or longer sentences to people of color. And uh, there were many exposés, a very big one in 2016 by ProPublica that really brought it to the fore. And that really got me more and more interested in artificial intelligence and how, how predictive analytics was changing everything we were doing when it came to uh, understanding crime, preventing crime and crime control. Because predictive analytics had created predictive policing, which is what we were calling intelligence-led policing, where you were using that data to divvy up your resources, either to put your cops and dots, you know, looking at your hotspots and putting those cops there, looking at the times, looking at the, you know, the, uh, the intersections, looking at the many things that uh, you would do to give you a more evidence-based or data-driven approach to understanding policing. But wherever there was data, there seemed to be some measure of discrimination because historically the data that was being used was data that actually had things like bias and prejudice and systemic racism really baked into it. So I started to become more vocal and to start having more conversations with the criminal justice uh, fraternity. And then I realized there was no criminologist really stepping out there and speaking about these things. And then it goes back to that childhood, Renee, who was the advocate for her friends, who stood up for the other person, who had to stand up in class and, and tell the teacher the things that we felt that could have been done better in the classroom, oftentimes uh, to my own demise, because uh, standing up in, in the classroom at that time was not something that was encouraged or, or having uh, an advocate uh, spirit was not something encouraged in the school that I attended, you know, and, or even at the time. And, and that's it. And I just stepped in. I just stepped in and I started to speak up publicly about the things that I was seeing and ways in which we need to rethink what we were doing and why we needed these ethical guardrails. And the fact that this type of decision making in the criminal justice system is really high stakes decision making. And we just couldn't leave it up to an algorithm. Mm -hmm. So before we dig deeper into some of those predictive policing and criminal justice sentencing algorithm, uh, algorithms, uh, let me just ask you a, a couple of other uh, sort of more general questions about if or how AI uh, may fit within, um, let's say, rehabilitation uh, people, rehabilitating uh, drug abusers or, or uh, addicts of, of different kinds. And where does AI fit into that sort of rehabilitation process that you care about so much? Does AI have any 
plays a role in that process at all? Can AI help us treat people in some way? I, I believe so. I definitely believe so. I think as we move more into telemedicine, we will start to see that in particular uh, aspects of, of psychology, I think it's, it's really important. I think uh, at first, uh, when it comes to even an individual being able to use some kind of tool to assess uh, their, their risk levels, to assess where they are uh, when it comes to using a substance, because at first there's a lot of denial where individuals don't feel comfortable coming forward and saying, I'm using a substance or this substance is using me because I'm, I'm losing control. So I think to even measure levels of control, I think it's important uh, as we use a, a chat box, as we use a risk assessment tool, I think there are assessment tools that we could use for individuals, particularly when they start to feel out of control or they start to feel ashamed of that particular behavior. And I think those assessment tools can immediately link them to someone like a substance abuse therapist or uh, someone who, or any other type of therapist, to make that early intervention before they get involved with the criminal justice system. Because I think in the first stages of addiction, uh, people don't want that face-to-face -face contact immediately with a therapist, because that puts a lot of pressure. It puts a lot of judgment, and it makes sometimes individuals very uncomfortable. And what it can do, it can really um, stymie or it can really impact ne negatively that sort of therapeutic alliance that needs to be built. So I think building it with an AI tool uh, is really, really important in that early stages. And it's something that uh, really needs to be looked at, because I think AI could be very effective dealing with trauma in its early stages and then allocating that uh, individual or allocating or uh, sending to that individual the kinds of resources that are required and then creating the kinds of life connections that are required at that time and as well as before as you know it becomes to really sitting down in that chair and having that that conversation so definitely i believe it has a role to play not only in, in substance abuse but in anything where there's been abuse in anything where there is trauma in anything where there needs to be an early conversation where people are not always comfortable with a human just yet because they don't want that level of judgment. Very well. Uh, and, and then bef let me ask you one, one other sort of general question, uh, which stems from a recent sort of argument or debate I had with a, with a good friend of mine about whether there's racism and, and how do we exactly judge racism, systemic racism, because, you know, we were discussing the Black Lives Matter situation and whether there's racism in, in the police departments in the United States or in Canada, where I am from. And, you know, his argument was like, he's showing me a picture of a police uh, academy graduates uh, sort of lined up, you know, to at their graduation ceremony. And you can see like 30 or 40% of them were people of color. And his argument is, look, they're overrepresented. You have certain percent of the population of these minorities, but actually a larger percentage of the population is within the police force. Therefore, he goes, I don't see that kind of systemic bias or systemic racism that you're talking about. What would you have responded to a person like that, to this kind of argument? Well, certainly. I would tell him that when it comes to the hiring process, people of color may be a highly represented or if he saw a picture that where they look overrepresented, that's fine. That's in hiring. But racism 
is endemic or it is uh, so ingrained in the uh, psyche. Now, he has to understand that early relationship that began with the enslavement of a particular people, African people, who were brought to the United States. He's got to look at the dynamics of the plantation culture, from the plantation economy to the psychology of of racism at that point in time. And then if he was to look at that and something like uh, the laws that govern enslavement or when an enslaved African ran away, the laws that spoke to how that individual could be recaptured and brought back to the plantation, the advertisements that were in newspapers in the U.S. at that time that spoke about how you could recapture an enslaved African person, and that person really meant nothing. They were just a piece of property to be returned to their owner. And what would happen to an individual if that individual ran away? And when you look at those years and you look at those relationships and then you look at something like Jim Crow and then you look at the civil rights movement and then you look at the 70s and then you look at now, you would realize that there is a problem. There is a big problem. So whether or not you've seen 30 or 40 percent, that's different. And the problem becomes in those interactions on the street where the individual officer has got to use his or her discretion or how a simple contact between a black man and a white police officer could turn into something fatal. And that's what we've got to understand. And what your friend has also got to understand, it's not something that you see, but it is something in the psyche. It is something so deeply rooted in the historic conscience that many times we don't know it is there but it automatically slips into our thinking when we have decisions to make, when we have choices to make, when we are faced with a particular uh, situation where we may feel fear and what we associate that fear to, or where we have to award something to someone, or where we have to make a decision in the C-suite, or where we have to make a hiring decision. So it's something that is so ingrained in our psyche that we are fooled into believing it is not there. Well, uh, th- that all totally makes sense. My reply to him was something to the effect of, yes, you say that you can't see the racism because, first of all, it's not racism against you. Me and you, we are two white guys, so we can't see something really that's not targeting us, but actually favoring us, right? Because we haven't been stopped by the police. We haven't been, you know carded or, you know, random checked and all that stuff by the police or, or uh, you know, uh, arrested or cavity searched or what, what have you, number one. And number two is today's racism, it seems to me. So, so on the first point, I honestly have no idea what it means to be a person of color growing up in Canada or in America. I don't. I, I simply don't. I can talk to people who have had that experience, but first I grew up in Bulgaria and secondly, I'm a white guy. So I could I could kind of like get some vague clue, but I've never had the experience and I never could because I'm just like not in that position. Uh, so, so I can't really experience that kind of r- racism to begin with because it's favoring me. It's not against me. And secondly, I think Today, logically, if I think about it, it's a lot more subtle. It's not so blatant and obvious as it was, you know, 
150 years ago, but it's now several layers deeper and more subtle and more sophisticated with perhaps more pernicious effects in some ways or others. So you're not going to see this kind of very clear KKK up in your face, you know, uh, white power. You would see, but that's not usually how it comes about, it seems to me. But I would think right now we are seeing that up in your face racism. We are seeing very overt racism right now in the United States. I don't think it's it's subtle. Uh, there may be systems that make you want to believe that there are opportunities and there's equal access, but I think it's always been uh, very overt for the people who feel it. And I think what we've had to uh, probably cope with would be polite racists. I think many individuals know how to be polite about their racism. And then when they were in their groups and their enclaves and their own communities, uh, then they feel comfortable to say certain things. But I think what America realized with the death of George Floyd and the those, uh, you know, eight plus minutes uh, we were looking at, at, at that is that it is overt and it is overt as that where you had an officer who felt comfortable knowing he was being recorded on videotape to continue with what he was doing. And that's as overt as it gets. The ability to believe that you can take the life of a black man or a man of color on a videotape in front of the entire world to see and not even move your knee not even for one second. Yeah, and, and my bias here personally and experience is that, you know, I've traveled extensively throughout the United States, but I'm based in Canada and here the Canadian police and the Canadians in general, we're a lot more sort of subdued and subtle. So that's that's kind of why I was talking about that. So there is racism in Canada. There's absolutely no doubt about that. It's just that that's what I meant by being subtle is like, it seems to me in Canada here, it's, a, it's not so much up in your face because that's kind of, you can say maybe the social psychology difference between Canadians and Americans in, in some case. Uh, supposedly, or at least stereotypically, we Canadians are a lot more subdued and kind of sorry, sorry, sorry kind of attitude. We apologize. Well, I grew up in Canada in the 70s, actually. Oh, I grew you up did? In Canada Where? In the 70s, yeah. so, uh, in, in, uh, uh, let me just remember, where did I grow up? Don Mills, actually, was the oh, name of the not area. Far this from, is like in so, the, so Toronto. That's in the early 70s, very early 70s, yes. So I you know what there. I'm talking I about. Yes, yes, primary uh, school. Uh, so, yeah, so I know the Canadian culture are very, uh, very well, yes. So do you agree with this kind of claim I put forward? Well, I, I agree with the claim because I'm also, I specialize in policing. So I understand the Canadian model of policing as well as I understand the American model of policing. So it's definitely a different and a different experience. And of course, I understand you would not be exposed to what a man of color or a woman of color is exposed to. And this is why we need that understanding, because I think plenty of people believe because it doesn't happen to them, it doesn't exist, or because I don't see it in my daily life, or because I see all these amazing black people on TV, you know, the Oprah's, the Michael Jordan's, the, the Barack Obama's and the Michelle Obama's, and I'm thinking that, you know, this is the situation but it may not be the situation. Or we see in, in big companies where they put a black or, or, or brown person as head of diversity and equity and inclusion, and you're thinking, well, everything is good at these companies. But it really isn't. Because as we say, by putting a brown face in a high place doesn't mean that racism doesn't exist. 
Yeah, and, and just to finish that, to close that loop and maybe move on to the actual algorithms here, uh, my final retort to my friend was because his argument is like, look, man, you like me came to this country with one tennis bag of clothes and you started from nothing and you did everything on your own, quote unquote, right? So you had no advantage. You were a total disadvantage compared to all born Canadians, etc., etc., right? Why should someone of different color have, you know, affirmative action or something for them? You know, you didn't start better off than them. And my response was like, yeah, but look, I had a lot of disadvantages coming here on my own as a young person and all of that, but I never had the disadvantage of color. I never had that disadvantage. Well, it's, and- it's really more than color. And that's what I want people to understand. It's more than color. Right. When you think of the U.S. context, it's not only racism based on color. It is a psychology of racism that perpetuates, that extended beyond the plantation, where the mentality, the economics, the psychology of the plantation was maintained in certain systems. When you look at something as redlining, where persons of color in the United States were denied access to finances, to loans, to banking opportunities, to mortgages, to home ownership. Or charge higher interest in some cases. Exactly. Then you understand how deeply ingrained in the society. So it's not who comes with one bag of clothes. It's these individuals who had to leave a plantation. And history shows that when African-Americans left the plantation, they accessed education more than any other group in America and was able to educate themselves from being denied to read to having someone like Frederick Douglass, who was an enslaved man who got out of enslavement and who became an intellectual. And not only him, so many others, enslaved Africans, right? When we go back, as Alice Walker said, in search of our mother's gardens or in our father's gardens, we saw individuals who could not read, embrace education, and rise when it came to scholarship. So it's just not, you know, equal access in that regard. You've got to think about things like the, uh, the riots in Tulsa and when African uh, people, African-American people were building their own communities and they created their own uh, housing and their own uh, banks and their own stores. What happened? People went into the community, white people, and they burnt them down. They killed, they massacred, they destroyed those communities. And it's not the first time. So we just can't think about what we see in the now, but I think people have got to understand the history. It is a painful history. It is a shameful history. It is a history of trauma. And I think sometimes many people don't want to go back to it because it's something that you want to, you know, cover up, but we've got to be honest. And this is why we've got to have these open and honest conversations to move forward. And this is why this movement at this time is forcing those conversations. And this is why they are looking for a reimagining of America that says that black and brown lives matter, as well as black and brown data matters when it comes to those algorithms. Thank you very much for that. So so now moving to the specific algorithms, what's the problem with the algorithms, right? Because you know, engineers and mathematicians would, would often say something like, 
look, you can't argue with math, right? The math says so. These people are a higher risk uh, group. Uh, they're more likely to reoffend. Therefore, we should charge them or they're more likely to not pay their mortgages. Therefore, we should charge them higher interest. They should pay higher insurance and they should have longer sentences. And if you don't like it or if you don't believe me, look at the math. The math is the, the math is the math. What do you say to that? Well, we, we know that math is an uh, objective. Uh, we know that math is uh, very uh, subjective. We know that math and science is not neutral. We know that algorithms don't design themselves. They're designed by individuals who may or may not have particular biases or who may think they don't have those biases and those biases slip into the design process. We also know that we've got to ask ourselves who's at the table when these algorithms are being designed. We've got to think about that. And then we've got to think about as something as systemic racism. And if you have a country built on systemic racism, and if you have uh, systems built on systemic racism and institutional prejudices, and we're collecting data from those systems, what type of data are we expecting to get? And if we don't have proper systems, human as as well as uh, technological to detect those risks and mitigate against those risks, then we will continue to have the challenges that we're seeing right now. And we will continue to be struggling, trying to come up with algorithms that are really reflective and that do not have those old biases and those uh, disparities and inequalities. And we would not have an industry like AI that has now got to rethink moving forward, reimagine as well, because look at it this way. When you come to the conceptualization of design, you are using your imagination and your imagination is already situated within the context of whatever your prejudices and your biases are. So just in the imagination process, who does designs an algorithm and what is that algorithm designed for? So when someone was looking at facial recognition, yes, someone said we could have facial verification and we could use it to open our phones and to open our bank accounts and we could do those great things, but somehow we could also use it to surveil people of color, right? And to use it to incarcerate people of color or to use it for a particular demographic, which would be people of color who we've made this presumption are more criminal than anyone else. So we, we've got to think about that. So so this is a good moment to, to dig deeper into the specific algorithms that you're an expert in uh, from the point of view of the uh, criminal justice system and perhaps uh, predictive policing or, or sentencing or any other examples that you can bring to our attention. Tell us how these biases, I mean, we, we are aware that, you know, facial recognition is, is more likely to misidentify uh, uh, people of color, but especially black women, I think, are the, the hardest to, to, quote, identify the, uh, than any other group uh, or to misidentify rather as, as in some cases, uh, male or, or just totally mis misidentify them. But Tell us what are the problems perhaps uh, with the algorithms used by the criminal justice system, uh, by the predictive policing software, or even by the, the software which judges use for sentencing or handing out or de deciding the term of sentence w w when they're making their own decisions. 
Right. So what we're seeing with the data is uh, the design of these algorithms. And many of the data points that are being used are also proxies or for racial classification. So if you're using things like uh, traditional data, geospatial data, you're looking at people's education, you're looking at uh, people's prior criminal records, you are looking at uh, how many uh, other individuals with a criminal record might be living in a particular community. Uh, when you're looking at certain things, uh, what happens is that those classification points become proxies for race, although you may not start out with that. As well as if you're using criminal justice data, you would appreciate that criminal justice data is data that is very skewed. It's dirty data. It's data that uh, is uh, just littered with uh, biases and prejudices. So if you're building something with that, you are going to get something that either over-represents or over over police. So we would see something like predictive policing. Uh, the city of Santa Cruz in California recently banned it because they realized that there was something about this that was prejudiced, that was biased, because what it was doing is really over-policing black and brown communities. So right there and then we realized that this technology is not solving crime or reducing crime, but it's really re-victimizing individuals and really maybe creating crime in communities of, of, of color. Uh, when we think about uh, even other aspects like sentencing, what we saw with sentencing were these algorithms were either opaque in the sense that they uh, really were um, frustrating due process. And then we saw either what they call zombie algorithms that were doing this over predicting of whether or not someone was high risk and whether or not that individual would reoffend. Uh, so what we saw is because we were using this data to create these algorithms, and of course the individuals who were designing these algorithms may not have been uh, the most diverse group or have that level of data vigilance or data consciousness when it came to understanding what they were uh, designing. And then in just our general thinking, the process is, well, we're designing something to reduce crime. And by reducing crime, we've got to incarcerate black and brown people. So right there in the design optimization process, we know we're optimizing two things criminal and blackness, or criminal or color, skin color. So we see how these algorithms start to behave badly, and it's really uh, impossible to rein them back, to bring them back in once they've been released. So this is why we saw when it came to sentencing, when it came to predictive analytics or predictive policing, when it came to creating those gang databases, when it came to facial recognition, deeply baked into the technology is systemic racism, so then it could never be fear. Uh, then you would have situations where individuals were being sentenced based on an algorithm, and because of that whole black block box question and the issues of accountability, transparency, and explainability, individuals were not able to face their accuser, which is something in criminal justice that you are able to do. So if an algorithm makes a decision about you and you're unable to face that algorithm, then what happens to you? What happens to you? So this is why those ethics were critical, and this is why we had to look at what was fair when it came to algorithmic decision-making, and then we had to really look at questions of accountability and transparency and explainability and what happens when a third-party vendor creates something for the criminal justice system and what's the liability issue when you outsource criminal justice decision-making to an algorithmic decision-making system. You know, we've got to look at all of those things. 
and it comes down to civil rights, civil liberties, and whether or not algorithms will undermine those things, particularly in the criminal justice system and in society in general. Yeah, when it comes to accountability and uh, uh, transparency especially, uh, it seems it, it's really one of those pernicious uh, examples where an actual algorithm can decide a human's life. So instead of a judge or a human judging uh, from a human point of view the crimes or 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 or, or the sentence of another human, we have a, a a sort of an algorithm which decides that and which is non-transparent and non-accountable. And actually, a, a couple of months ago, I interviewed Kathy O'Neill. Uh, on the podcast with her fantastic book, book Weapons of Mass Destruction. And uh, she was talking, uh, her example was that of uh, the software that's used to evaluate the performance of uh, school teachers in uh, New York State. And how when she actually tried to uh, have a look, because, you know, she's a, a PhD from Harvard in, in very advanced math. She was a quant uh, on Wall Street and all of that. She gets math, right? And she tried to look at the actual algorithm that are used to evaluate math teachers in New York State. The answer she kept getting was like, oh, it's math, you wouldn't get it. Oh, it's math, you wouldn't get it. So there's absolutely no transparency. And there's no guarantee it even works because you cannot falsify it. You cannot prove it wrong or right. It's too advanced. So at some point, she says, it becomes like so embedded that it becomes like religion. And it turned out not even the decision makers in New York State who made the decision to hire that company which created that software were even aware about how exactly it worked. And, and, and they basically took at face value the claims of a company that has an incentive to sell you something, whether it works or not. And then she went through a great extent to show you how it doesn't actually work. And it's a very poor way of assess uh, teachers' performance uh, with so many uh, you know examples. And yet for trademark purposing or, or you know, uh, commercial uh, secrets and stuff like that, you're not allowed Proprietary to... Proprietary rights, yes. Right, right. So property rights, when it comes to intellectual property, you cannot look into the algorithm, so it's non-transparent. You can't hold it accountable when it makes mistakes. So it becomes like this, you know, third power or additional power that... Literally, and in, in your example, when it comes to, you know, people being sentenced, for example, this could mean life sentence or, or you know, the possibility for a new life or totally not the possibility of a new life. So it's really like fundamentally massively impactful on people's lives. Uh, I was going to say Kathy's book is a very powerful book because one of the things she speaks about, which is what I do, is demystifying data and stop using math as a point of fear. So when we say the algorithm did it, people step back and they say, somehow that decision has got to be neutral. It has got to be objective. But nothing about math and science is objective or neutral. Nothing about an algorithm is objective or neutral. It's a very deliberate process when you make an algorithm. It's a very deliberate process when you create an AI tool. It's a very 
deliberate process throughout the design, development, and deployment life cycles. And this is why we've got to ensure there's that ethical guardrail. And this is why we've got to understand how subconscious and implicit bias slip into the design process. And when it's there, how do we ensure that we mitigate against it? And that's that's one of the great risks right now when it comes to AI. And it's the one that's been causing a lot of the crises that we are seeing in the industry. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes uh, from Kathy is that algorithms are opinion uh, embedded in code. So they're no... Indeed they are. They're not sacred and they're not, you know, infallible. They're not perfect and they're not uh, objective. You know, they're just an and they should be challenged. Yes. And they should always be challenged. And an individual should always have that recourse to challenge the algorithm. And that's why maybe the black box should be crystal clear so we could look into it. We may not always understand it because we're not data scientists, but I think the individual should always have the right to challenge it. And, and that is why accountability, transparency, and algorithms we can trust, responsible and principled AI is so critical. Well, okay, so let's take that, that thought then. So how do we challenge a system which is already quite embedded uh, and it has sort of its tentacles, if you will, in the credit industry and banking industry in the predictive policing industry by simply sending certain police cars at certain days of the time, uh, at certain times of the day to certain locations, uh, of then uh, advising judges to make certain longer sentences for one group versus another people, another group, in some cases to charge them higher insurance uh, and all of this. So this system is already quite developed, it's quite widespread, it's quite deep and quite well embedded. So how do we challenge that system then? Well, you challenge the system by calling the system out. And this is what we're seeing now more and more. You challenge that system by saying that the status quo is no longer accepted. You challenge that system by forcing each and every one of us to challenge ourselves and to challenge our thinking. And we challenge society by saying that we are not going to continue like this, that there are other ways for us to continue. And I think we are seeing that challenging happening right now with calls to defund the police, reimagine policing, recreate policing, community-led policing now, community-led initiatives, stakeholder engagement, public engagement, and letting people know, as we are seeing right now, that you're still Civil rights are something that are as human or something that are critical to you being as human as you want to be. And I think you've got to challenge. And I think this is what we're seeing more and more. You've got to challenge the system. I'm not saying that the system is going to change today or it's going to change next week, but you've got to keep the system on its toes because we all have biases, right? We all have prejudices. We all stereotype individuals. Sometimes we call it preference. That's my preference, but it's a bias. And not all biases or prejudices work against us. So I think that education and that understanding of what is going on in our brain, and this is why I always say, you know, people call me a data activist. And this is why I always say it's about being data conscious. 
And to be data conscious, you've got to be vigilant. So if we come back to substance abuse, if you are in the process of rehabilitation, and if you are dealing with recovery, you know that recovery is a lifetime process. It is a lifelong process because at any stage of the game, you can have a relapse. And that's when it comes to systemic racism. You've got to challenge the system. Right now, all of America is probably in a state of recovery when it comes to racism, right? What we don't want is a relapse to see another George Floyd. What we don't want is a relapse to see predictive policing arresting young black and brown men disproportionately. What we don't want is a relapse of what we saw in that Wendy's car park in Atlanta, where a black man was awakened in his sleep, right? And it turned into his death for a driving, drunk driving offense while he was in a parked car in a parking lot. So I think we've all got to be vigilant, understand the biases that exist in ourselves and be conscious enough to know when it's slipping in and just check ourselves. And that's how we challenge the system, by challenging ourselves. I'm all for that. And and, uh, I have written extensively in the past about how the world is transformed by asking questions. So so we, we should keep questioning and ask new questions and better questions and deeper questions and not uh, you know, accept uh, the claims of the system at face value, if you will. But someone might respond, well, look, uh, let's take your example about defund the police and, and all of that, right? We are going to devolve into anarchy, they would say, and they have said it. We can't simply defund the police because some of those neighborhoods which are very crime-ridden to begin with are going to devolve into complete shootouts and utter anarchy. And they would say, well, look in Seattle, that that little patch, you already had several shootings. You had a 17-year-old who died. You have another one in critical condition. And why? Because the police wasn't there. What do you say to that kind that's of fear mongering? That's, that's what we call fear mongering, right? And we don't ever want to get into fear mongering. Uh, defund the police doesn't mean there's going to be no crime control or there's going to be no crime prevention. I think what it means is how do we reinvest those resources? What defund the police is saying when you have an interaction with a police officer and someone who may have mental illness, you may not need a police response. When you have a situation with a young black man who may be having some sort of traumatic experience and his mom calls the police or black young black or brown girl, the parent doesn't want to see them dead after the police interaction. What defund the police means it's time to reimagine because the system that has been in place has not been working fairly. It means we need to come up with something better, something to serve communities, something that does not feel make black and brown people in America feel threatened or leave them traumatized after that experience. It means let's look at the resources that we've been putting into militarizing the police. Let's look at those resources and pull those resources back and put those resources into other types of systems that may serve us better than policing. Let's look at homelessness. Let's look at mental illness, right? Let's look at youth uh, development. Let's look at diversion programs for juvenile. Let's reinvest those monies into the communities because many of those communities are victims of disinvestment. So let's build and let's invest in human potential and community potential. And maybe we won't need the kinds of draconian policing and the kinds of policing that 
looks like racism. If it's not overt racism, there's some sort of racism in there. Let's look at the needs of the community and let's build our communities up that will build our country up. And let's not only use law enforcement as a response because law enforcement has never been the right go-to response for social challenges or for psychological challenges. And I've trained a lot of police officers all over the world when it comes to the kinds of interventions that are required. So defund the police, don't buy into that fear mongering that there's gonna be no, there's gonna be chaos and anarchy on the streets of the world. No, what it's gonna say is that we are going to make better police officers. We are going to improve the relationships between officers and the communities. And we're gonna find a way, a different kind of social contract that doesn't always have to end in death for a black or brown person. What can we learn from the Camden, New Jersey example in that context, if anything? The Camden example has been a great example where they reinvented our policing, where they invested more in our community-led initiatives, where they looked at the criminal justice system and the legal system, where they brought equity uh, to the system, where there was also real-time justice responses. We looked at how the uh, individuals, how uh, law enforcement and the communities build different kinds of relationship, a lot of stakeholder engagement, a lot of public engagement, a lot of bringing those policies to the public and getting public involvement in that. Also, it's about trust. The Camden uh, experiment was built on trust and transparency. And uh, even that Camden experiment still needs some tweaking and can do with a little work, but it's a start. It's a start in the ways, in, in a way in which things could be done differently. And if that is a start, I think what we can see now would be even greater because I think many of the policies are going to be challenging the imagination. And I think when we challenge our imagination, all of humanity is made better because of that challenge. So uh, can you tell us perhaps what were, what were some of the lessons there uh, after Camden disbanded their police and sort of defunded it and then sort of reinvented it from the ground up? And more specifically, what was the impact of the crime statistics uh, at the local community level uh, before and after that change? How, how did things change? Were there more murders or less? Was there more crime or less? What was the general sort of Uh, effect of that? All right. So while I'm very familiar with the Camden model, I've not studied it to that regard. So I don't have their statistics, but I do know they're spoken about as a success story. So which means that whatever happened in the community was much improved as what's going on there before. I mean, I understand Camden pre that experiment, pre that social experiment, and things were pretty tough in Camden. We know that it was a really tough city. So to see it evolved into something that is now reduced crime, greater levels of crime control, uh, less uh, negative interaction between uh, police and the community, reduced homicide rates, we know that there is a different way to police. And that way is about legitimacy. And I think that the Camden experiment is that we could be seen as legitimate without using excessive force or without using very draconian initiatives. And policing is about confidence and it is about trust. And people have got to believe that 
the police or the criminal justice system is being fair. And I think with the Camden experiment, it was just a different way of doing things. And what they did is they put the community first. So the Camden experiment is client-centered. It's people-centered. It's community-centered. And once you put people first and you make people the priority, not policing, when you make people the priority, you're going to see a change on the street. Yeah, I watched a mini documentary on the topic. And, and basically the bottom line was that while it's not perfect and there's still crime happening and so on, overall, it not only did not devolve into anarchy as some people say it would, but actually there's a measurable improvement in almost every way we can measure things. It's not perfect, there's still crime, there's still bad things happening, it's better than before. So not only that it didn't get worse, but it actually did get better. So that's kind of a very hopeful uh, bottom line, it seems to me, and obviously there we need to build on that. But uh, leads me to the other question, because you uh, mentioned that you are familiar with the American uh, model and the Canadian model of policing. So I wanted to ask you just to share with us uh, what the differences are here, because most of us, like me, are not exactly aware. But uh, I, for example, am pretty impressed when I hear something like, and perhaps I don't know how much you know about Norway and Scandinavian models, but in Norway, for example, the police hasn't actually shot anyone, not a single person dead for over 10 years. So, so what's the difference? And someone will say, well, that's not the police's fault. They don't have, you know, because I, I posted this on Facebook, that example with normal and people are like, yeah, they don't have race issues and they don't have this, they don't have that. Is there any difference between, let's say, the Canadian police model, the American pol police model? And I don't know how familiar you are with the Scandinavian or Norwegian right. uh, so I, I am very familiar. Now, in the Scandinavian, Norway, Finland, those countries, uh, you've got to understand that, as what I said, they invest in human potential. So once you invest in human potential, you're going to see reduced crime rates. Also, when it comes to things like substance abuse, uh, drug use, they use the harm reduction model, right? Uh, they don't uh, criminalize the use of, of substance. They don't criminalize someone for an addiction. They don't criminalize a juvenile who may be dealing with delinquency issues. So whatever you criminalize is what's going to give you your crime rate, first of all. So many things that are criminalized in the United States or in North America, not criminalized in those Scandinavian countries. You would also realize when it comes to corrections, their approach to corrections is really an approach, uh, a justice-oriented approach that puts the individual uh, in at the center, where the individual is uh, a co-collaborator on the kinds of uh, rehabilitation modules that are used with them. Many of the prisons in Norway and Scandinavia, there's like apartment buildings, right? People could stay in there. Sometimes they can leave and come back. Some people are incarcerated just for, for the weekend. Some people get an opportunity to earn an income. So it's different countries. It's different systems. Um, it's really their whole approach to social challenges. Now, the Canadian model, Canada's definitely uh, celebrates multiculturalism uh, just more than uh, many other countries. The approach is definitely more compassionate, is more empathy. But within recent months, I have been reading, can't remember the communities, but there has been a crease in homicide in some of the black and brown communities in Canada, and tensions have been building. So it's not perfect. There yeah, are some Toronto, big challenges happening yeah. now. 
Definitely, right? Because I remember reading about those within the last few months. Uh, the Canadian model, of course, crime is, is much lower in Canada. In many of the provinces, homicide is not really high. Uh, the relationship, again, it's a more client-centered approach. And it's also the question of diversity and inclusion and the Canadian approach to that as well. But we've got to appreciate there are people of color in Canada who still do feel discriminated by some community, by some uh, policing or law enforcement approaches. The American system is, again, you've got to come back on how policing was developed. And you've got to also realize in the United States, given every social movement, we saw a change with policing. Many of us can remember those documentaries, uh, pre-civil rights during Jim Crow, with black and brown people being hosed, being canines being used against them. The people birth being of a nation. Up, lynching. We, we have all of those things. So you've got to understand how policing was used. How did the police start? You know, you've got to look at that correlation between bounty hunters who went out there and got enslaved Africans and brought them back to the plantation. So you've got to look at how racism, subconscious and implicit bias is part of the policing model. It's not overtly there. Nobody's teaching you how to be a racist cop, right? Most cops are good cops. Most cops are not racist. Most cops never use their gun during the course of a day's work. But there are those interactions. And although they may be a small group of in, uh, incidents, they oftentimes end up in a fatality and the death of a black and brown person. So again, it comes back to what we criminalize. In the United States, we criminalize skin color. So we know that black and brown leads to an offense, could lead to an arrest. Also, we have the highest levels in the world when it comes to our prison population. So that speaks to what our philosophy of policing is, because it, it's a matrix. The criminal justice system is a matrix. It's the police, it's the courts, and it's the prisons. So you can see what's happening there. There's a color to justice. You, you know, your skin color punishment can, rather than prevention as well. And when you look at the uh, models in Scandinavia and in Finland, as we spoke about harm reduction, investing in human potential, not criminalizing everything. So you're not going to have uh, those challenges, those high crime rates and rehabilitation is really critical to that model as well. And respect for the individual and that narrative where people could re-engineer their cognitive landscapes. People can change. And you've also got to look at the population demographics. And you would appreciate in Scandinavia, most people look like each other. Of course, there are black and brown people there. But the highest percentage of the population looks like each other. So I guess people may treat each other with that respect that you may not see in countries where people don't look like each other, where there is that fear, where there is bias, where there is prejudice and where there's a lack of understanding and where there is that disrespect often, you know, for diversity. And this is why one of the things we may have to do in the United States is really look at things like racial literacy as we teach civics, we teach racial literacy as they teach crime prevention in Singapore. So we may need to come up with, with other things to really bolster the system. Yeah, let's take that thought here about prevention a little bit and see how technology in general and perhaps artificial intelligence in particular 
can come useful or or the best way to utilize that tool as a leverage to prevent crime rather than to arrest to sentence and to imprison can we switch the the usage from behind the point of the crime to before and to prevention rather than punishment and how uh, definitely we have to do that and that's where i come in and that's what i've been looking at from the perspective of urban ai and when i speak about human potential when it comes to investment as opposed to investing in crime control and crime prevention it's exactly that what we've got to invest in is enhancing and improving quality of life and if we improve quality of life using ai tools looking at things like the smart cities model and using the data in urban demographics to look at how we divide resources you would find where there is high crime there is low resources you would find in communities of high crime there are high needs you would find in communities of high crime there are high levels of disinvestment so what we've got to look at is using the data using the data to make our resource pool more equitable and if we create ai tools to enhance quality of life what we will do is automatically enhance public safety and when we enhance public safety through investing in human potential we don't have to look at criminal responses or punitive responses and when we look at all that money we're spending on those prisons and we reinvent or defund uh the prison system as well uh then we will understand what we need to do so definitely we could use ai because when you think of the smart cities model when we think about making cities more interactive when we think of the aut autonomous cars that we want to start to use or our communication and transport technology and we're going to see more and more because of covid-19 particularly in big cities where ai is going to be used more to create contactless interfaces to make us more interactive in the things that we do and reduce human communication because we want to prevent the spread of covid-19 and prepare ourselves for future pandemics because of that data and there are also some ethical questions around the collection of of health data during covid-19 but this is not the conversation here we would see that we can use that data to increase the potential in our fellow citizens by bringing more equity to how resources are shared in society and then we will see crime reduction and we will understand the importance of using ai to really extend our imagination and create the kinds of tools that are required to advance humanity to future proof societies and to give us the kinds of systems that celebrate all of us and those are the things that i am interested in yeah and i i forgot to ask you before that about telling us what you do at urban ai so because uh, you're the founder of urban ai so is that kind of like the mission statement that you just shared with us or do you want to add anything well, else about well it's kind of the mission statement urban ai is really bringing my knowledge as a criminologist and a criminal psychologist and bringing all of that to the design process when it comes to a new model of engagement for urban communities and it really is about looking at things like trauma 
looking at the trauma that comes out of violence and understanding how do we reduce violence by investing in human potential, by creating those tools that are going to share up those resources in an equitable manner, as well as taking AI into urban spaces and really demystifying the data, democratizing AI and empowering communities. Because I think so far the conversations about AI have been within the AI fraternity. And one of the things we're hearing is that we may not need more data scientists. We may need more sociologists like myself, more psychologists, more educators, more philosophers, more urban planners, more diversity, even AI, to come up with the solutions. And one of the things that I say, when it comes to diversity, it means that what you are getting are more creative solutions as well. So urban AI, it's new, it's brand new. I'm now in the process of getting funding and really rolling this thing out and securing the right kinds of uh, mentors and and uh, investors who are going to work me through the process. But I think the time is right, and the time is now, because we've heard the call that is the time is now to imagine, particularly what happens in our urban spaces and in big cities across the world. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. I myself has been, have been pushing the call for more philosopher, philosophers and ethicists in technology in general, and AI in particular, for over a decade now. Uh, and the good news is that people used to think that I'm crazy and it's a waste of time uh, because as an engineer friend of mine says, you philosophers are all bullshitters because you don't have anything to show at the end of the day. Whereas you see, I, he says, when I go to work and I finish my day, I have something to show for it. Um, but luckily that thought, I think I have seen it change dramatically for the last decade. And now there's so much more ethicists coming into the field. And I think we're going to need even more. But of course, we also need uh, more diversity and representation, both of women in general and women in, of color in particular. So what would you say to young women of color, perhaps, uh, with respect to AI or, or, or AI ethics or technology in general, what kind of advice do you have for them? Should they go into your field or into a similar field with, with technology or AI? Should they care about it? Should they be involved? Uh, and how, if they should? Right. So one of the things I try to do is demystify data. One of the things I try to do is encourage more people of color to enter uh, this field by letting them know how dynamic and how diverse it is. Also letting people know you don't have to enter AI as a data scientist. You could enter from psychology, you can enter from psychiatry, from sociology, from marketing, from communications, from crisis management, from risk management. All those are areas from finance, you know, all those are areas, philosophy. And, and what I try to do is bring that diverse perspective to them and, of course, let them understand how critical this technology is, how pervasive, how powerful it is, its potential and its promise. Also letting them know about the perils as well and the risks and understanding that I bring to them is that you've got to get involved because this is the future. 
This is the future. And you've got to have a voice in the future. And you cannot let the future happen without you being part of the co-design process. And I think more and more as I speak, more and more women in general, and not only a woman of color, actually white women as well, have been reaching out to me and saying, you know what, there's something about you, what you said that has inspired me and I want to get into AI. What we're also seeing is a lot of people mid-career who want to get into AI. And it's not only these young data scientists who are coming straight out of, of, of college, but a lot of people in their, their late 40s and their 50s who want to make a career change in this field. And so when we talk about diversity, it's not only about people of color or women, it's about disability, it's about mobility, it's about sexuality, it's about ageism, it's about all of those things that make up diversity. And when I speak about diversity, equity, inclusion, I'm bringing all of these people to the front line because we need all of us when it comes to AI. And so far, the conversation has really been AI talking to AI. And now we've got to have that level of public engagement because it's about the consumer. And one of the other things I really do is tell people, you need to be an educated consumer about data. You need to understand your data is power. You need to understand how someone is using your data. So particularly for young people, they've got to understand the power they hold in their phone because all of the world, all of big tech wants the data of these young people right now. And if these Zoomers, as we're calling them, don't understand what time it is when, they, when it comes to their data and the kind of capital they have in their hand, they've got to understand how to use it. So much of the work that I do is really to speak to young people, speak to diverse audiences and speak to big tech and those white men who are there, who many of them right now are trying to be on the right side of history, either through fear, shame or guilt. We're seeing big tech putting big money now into black talent and black excellence and developing the black community and black investment and to encourage black techno entrepreneurs or black entrepreneurs. And we're seeing all of that right now. What we want to see is sustained investment in talent when it comes to people of color, sustained venture capitalist dollars in bringing more uh, black and brown, uh, you know, unicorns into the world. And what we really want is to see is a sustained approach because, I mean, all the world is better for it. And I think we all know that. Fantastic. So uh, let me ask you this, this question about uh, what do you think as a psychologist, does it say that most of the AI assistants that we use today, uh, for example, Alexa, uh, Ray Kurzweil's is called Ramona. Uh, I interviewed David Ferrucci. His uh, uh, startup's AI is called Clara. Most of them are kind of female names. And then when I asked David Ferrucci why that's the case, you know, he, he told me, oh, well, that's just kind of like how it happened. It's an abbreviation. It stands for this, this, and this. And, you know, it doesn't mean anything more than, than that, right? It's not sexist. It's not biased in any way. It's just how it worked out. What do you think about that kind of argument? And, and does it even say anything that most of those personal assistants are females? It's bias. And that's implicit bias right there. It's so deep in the psyche and so automatic. You think that's just the way it is. No, that's not the way it is. I think people have got accustomed to the woman being the individual that we go to to ask everything, the wife, 
uh, the person who takes care of our home, right? Our homemakers, uh, our babysitters, they're all women. And it really is very sexist. And one of the things that I have a problem with, and I call people on it, is when they shout at Alexa, right? Some people raise their voice at Alexa. And it means that you've now developed a kind of relationship where you feel that you can use uh, some sort of intimidating voice. So if you, you scream, she's going to bring the answer quicker. And we've got to look at that. And that is something that many people are looking at. Many groups are looking at that uh, when it comes to voice. Uh, particularly, why do we use that female voice when it comes to using or creating these assistant uh, tools? Why is it always a woman? I think one company had mentioned using the voice of Samuel L. Jackson. And I don't think a lot of people are going to try to scream at that voice, right? <laughs> when it comes to him being uh, your, your, your next assistant. So we've got to think about that. We've got to think about it. And that really speaks to subconscious bias that we do things that we just think naturally, it seems, you know, okay. How, who are our librarians? Historically, our librarians were always uh, these wonderful women who sat with their fantastic glasses, their perfect hairstyles, and their nice clothes in the library. Uh, so it comes back to who gives us the information? Who do we go to? Do we always ask mom for it? Do we always ask the babysitter? Do we always ask the housekeeper? Who's the We've got to think about that. And this is another area where there needs to be diversity. And we need some male voices in there. We also need uh, some other types of voices. And not all voices are perfect voices. There are persons with speech impediments. And, and we've got to even think about you know, the things that we do and how we, we celebrate those things. What about an Alexa who may have a, a disability? Well, I, I, I agree with you about that, that bias, and that was actually the reason, of course, why I asked David Ferrucci after he moved from creating IBM's Watson uh, to, to create his Clara. And, 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 and I got a lot of pushback uh, for asking that question because first, as, as I told you, he responded, and I went to open up the page just to remind myself that Clara stands for Collaborative Learning and Reading Agent. Uh, and then I had a lot of people pushing back at me saying that question was out of line, it was in, inappropriate, it was not professional, and it's, it, it, if anything, represents my bias rather than his bias. Uh, so, so uh, I, I disagree with that. I disagree with that. There's just a natural tendency in society when it comes to, assist, when we think of a waitress, when we think of all of those things, who do we think about? You know, when we think of someone who's going to serve us, we always think about a, a woman. Right? When we look at what's happening uh, now with all uh, technology and all different types of more creative uses of technology, what are they creating? Uh, even in the sex industry, woman. So we've got to think about, and that's just really a bias. And we need, to, we need to, to deal with that. And it comes back to these open and honest conversations. And we've got to ask the question. So Clara could mean anything in the acronym. But when you call Clara, you are calling the name of a woman. And if she has a woman's voice, then Clara is a woman. So if Clara is not a woman, give Clara a man's voice. Very good point, very good point. <laughs> okay, Renee, so we've been talking for about 80 minutes uh, so far. So it is time to bring, unfortunately, our conversation to a close. So let me ask you the second last question I always ask, which is where can people find more about you and your work? Well, I think people are finding me more on LinkedIn. I'm on every social media platform. I'm in the process of building our urban AI, COVID-19 
uh, put a little damper in everything that was happening at that time. Uh, very soon our website is going to be up, but I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, people can reach out to me. Uh, they can Google me. Uh, my work is also on the uh, Columbia University website where I'm a community scholar there working at the intersection of AI and criminal justice, uh, working on my first book uh, through uh, uh, Columbia University so they can find me there as well. Or just Google me and uh, they will find an email address for me. Fantastic. Uh, and then what would be the best way to send our viewers and listeners today? What would be the one message, perhaps the most important thing that you would like for them to take away from this 85 or almost 90 minute conversation that we had with you today, uh, discussing a lot of AI, but also especially, uh, I, I thought it's important for us to focus on, on bias, conscious and unconscious, how it's embedded in the algorithms and in particular, how it ends up representing itself as racism in the end. But perhaps you wanna give out another message anything you want, what's the most important thing you want to send us away with? You know, the most important thing for me is about understanding. And for people to have understanding, there must be compassion and there must be empathy. I speak a lot about open and honest conversations because those need to be had. I think for anyone who's listening to this, understand that uh, we all have biases, we all have prejudices. It does not make us a bad person. What makes us a bad person is not checking those biases or using those biases against a particular group or a particular individual. And what I really wanna ask anyone is if you have an opportunity or given an opportunity, do what is right do what is right. And when you finish making that decision, once you know you've done the right thing, then you're okay. But if you know you made a decision based on bias, based on prejudice, or based on racism, then it could never be okay. And what you are doing there is that you are perpetuating a system that needs to be removed. And if it is you come from a place of privilege, if it is you come from a place of privilege, particularly white privilege, use that privilege to empower someone else. Use that privilege to shake the status quo. Use that privilege to make this place better for all of us. And I think if you are to do that, you've done great service to yourself, your community, your country, and society. Thank you very much, Renee. That was very well said. I really, I really like that. But let me just push a little bit back here just a tiny little bit because uh facebook and and i mean awareness has been growing now for the last three or four years but you know i spent considerable time in silicon valley and and i went to visit facebook google tesla and a bunch of other startups and big companies there microsoft cisco and and you know those people there especially once you go to the sea level and up you know they're very convinced and strongly believe that they're doing what's right. You know, if you go to Google, if you go to Facebook, to YouTube, they will tell you we are doing what's right. You know, and they're convinced 100% that they're not doing anything wrong. And yet, the awareness, uh, you know, I was there in 2011, and, and I was arguing many of these points at the time, and, and I was kind of occasionally not being invited back, if you will because I was this kind of annoying uh, Soc Socrates type of a guy who always asks those, those really annoying questions uh, and is not uh, contributing to a pleasant conversation. Uh, 
you know, and now the awareness has been growing, but as I said, most of them believed and, and even still to this day, they still mostly believe. I just watched another interview with uh, Mark Zuckerberg. He still believes that Facebook is largely on the right side of history. Uh, he still believes that they're largely doing things right. He still believes that they're a force for good by a large margin overall. Do you agree with that? And, and what do you I, say? I totally disagree. I totally disagree. The fact that you had Microsoft and IBM pulling back when it came to the development of facial recognition technology after years and millions of dollars of investment, and you have Amazon saying they're putting a moratorium on it, uh, you know they know that they were not doing what is right because they made that decision. When you look at the kinds of investments that are being made now in black talent and trying to, uh, you know, change the course of these uh, companies, you know that they knew that they weren't doing what is right. And when we see what's happening with Facebook and what they've been experiencing with all these big brands pulling a lot of, of their ads, it's hit the bottom line and they know they've not been doing what has been right. But people have been able to get away with doing what was not right for a very long time because of the system. And that's the way the system had it. And it wasn't about them, it was about the system. And it wasn't about uh, the fact that they didn't want to hire black people, it's because they couldn't find black people. And it wasn't because they didn't have more black people in big tech, it was because more black, black people needed to study STEM, right? There was always an excuse and a plaster, an excuse and a plaster. And what has happened now is the plaster has been pulled off and we're seeing the kind of, 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 of sickness this thing is and we're seeing that we've got to do something bigger so i think they know that they weren't doing the right thing all along but people have been called on it right now and as i said to you earlier it's not about a press release or the perfect pr strategy or trying to rebrand your product or trying to align your product with a hashtag it's about sustained change moving forward and understanding that we've got some systems cor to correct and we've got a limited amount of time to get it right. And that's in real time. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation. 